Okay. Okay, we're going to take a look at, I think, what is what an important religious topic tonight. We're going to try to define the religious trait of humility, which is something that uh, certainly gets analyzed in various religious traditions, what exactly it means. I guess I should uh, point out, uh, Rabbi Sachs asked that I record for posterity that this is not really Ravinder, <laughs> which I guess, uh, as you see, the jokes won't be as funny, so it'll be as clear as the sheer progresses. But uh, this is uh, Yitzchak Blau, something for Rabbi Ravinder. Um, we're going to look at the religious definition of humility, and in many ways, uh, this coming week's Parsha is the best place to look in the Torah, in some ways the classic Pasuk where Moshe is defined as the most humble person. And this is certainly going to inspire a number of questions. Uh, one, why is it coming up right here in the middle? We'll see it's right in the middle of a story. It's not clear why it's the time to speak about humility. Uh, secondly, what is humility? And thirdly, what are the implications? So let's start with the story. So we're going to look at the top right. We have a story in Bamidbar Perikibet. The story deserves a, a full shear on its own, which it's not going to get, but just enough to get to the issue of humility. But Dabir, Miriam, Aaron, Moshe. So Aaron and Miriam speak about their brother. I really I should say Miriam and Aaron, I should say, because it's important that Miriam's first. Alodon ha'isha kushira shelakach, kisha kushilakach. Something about the wife that Moshe has taken. Uh, clearly, the simplest reading seems to be that he took a, a woman of a, some kind of darker complexion. However, Chazal and many Mephoshim in their wake say that it's actually a reference to Tzipporah, that Moshe chose to separate from Tzipporah. But in general, in Judaism, we are not in favor of uh, separation from married life. That's not our ideal. But somehow, according to Chazal, Moshe post a certain stage of his life was an exception. But Aaron and Miriam, according to this view, were then talking about it. They thought it was inappropriate. So either Moshe took a second wife who's Kushit, or Moshe separates from Tzipporah, that's the reference, he, she's the Kushit, and his brother and sister are talking about it. Fine. And what's their complaint? Now their complaint seems to focus on Moshe thinks he's special. Does Moshe think he's the only prophet in the Jewish people? He's the only one God speaks to? God speaks to us too. Indeed, Miriam is called Miriam Hanaviyah, right? We're also prophets. Why does Moshe think he's special? Then Pastor Gimel says, that's quite interesting because it's in the middle of a dialogue, right? It's like a, a brief aside by the narrator. And Moshe was the most humble person on the face of the earth. So the first question I want to raise right away is, why do we need to hear about this now? Like, why is now the time? We're in the middle of a story. Like, let's see what happens now. We just heard that God heard this. God overheard what Miriam and Aaron are saying. It's pretty interesting to find out what, what Hashem is going to do. Right? Why do we hear right now, smack in the middle of the story, that Moshe is humble? So maybe I'll throw it to the crowd for a second. Why, why is this a relevant point? Well, I mean, we're going to find out soon about Hashem's reaction. Right? Hashem is upset with Miriam and Aaron. There's going to be a punishment involved. Right? Why do we need to hear right now about Moshe's humility? Anyone want to make a suggestion? What do you think? Ah, okay. I think you said two different things. One is that humility, no, they're both good. Humility might be a, a curative for Lashon Hara. Not humility, but speaking praises about a person who was just knocked down. Ah, okay. Very good. Very clever. But I think you also said something about Moshe not responding, right? Okay, excellent, very good. So it was suggested it's a very good shot. Let us go to the Ramban. We'll see that the Ramban basically endorses what you said. Okay, I see they have a very good system here in Like I sent in the sources all in one big uh, 
were descending order, and here, like, they put the Mephoshim next to the text they're commenting on. They are organized here at Atid. Very impressive. I don't think I've ever had such an organized source sheet in my life. Okay, let's see what we have here in the Rambad on the left. V'atam ish Moshe Navmod, l'hagid, to tell you, ki Hashem kinalo, God had to be zealous on Moshe's behalf, b'avur an v'tenuto, because of his humility. I think what you said, ki hu lo ya'anel rivla olam. Moshe does not get respond. That's not Moshe's personality. Moshe is not the kind of guy who, when he hears he's been insulted, needs to needs to retort. Oh, I could I could insult you better. But right? Moshe gives the old that I so you had a criticism of me. Life goes on. But Hashem needs to step in, right? Precisely because Moshe is not the kind of person to retort. So according to the Ramban's reading, this is reading number one here, right? It actually is not a digression from the story. It is the story. Miriam and Aaron say something negative about Moshe. Most people, myself included, would retort in kind. Moshe is not that kind of person. He, he's on up mode. So Hashem says, I will step in on behalf of Moshe Rabbein. Okay, great. Let's keep going. Rabbi Avraham Mefaresh, right, the Rabban frequently quotes Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra says, Moshe was not asking for greatness. Moshe never tried to say, I'm the best. Therefore, they're sinning. They are speaking against him for Noah. Let's think about what their criticism was. So what we mentioned some interpretations. Like maybe they're critical that Moshe took another wife. Maybe they're critical that he separated from Zipporah. But look what the words of the Pasuk say. What do the words of the Pasuk say? Does Moshe think that he got a unique prophecy? Don't we all... Are we not... Us, Moshe, Miriam, and Aaron, are we not prophets as well? Meaning implicit in their criticism is attributing some kind of arrogance to Moshe. Right? Moshe thinks he's special. So then again, the Pasuk fits seamlessly. What's Ha'ish Moshe Navod? It's countering the claim. Right? They're claiming there's an element of arrogance to Moshe Rabbein. Says the Pasuk, no, you got it all wrong. Right? So both according to Ramban and the Ibn Ezra, what I said is not 100% true. It's not a digression of the narrator. It fits seamlessly into the story. Again, for the Ramban, for the Ramban it means, well, Moshe's not going to respond, so God has to step in. That's why it's there. For the Ibn Ezra, it's, and it, their claim is way off. Right? This is off. Moshe's not doing it out of arrogance. Okay, let us see one more approach here, and then we'll try a little bit to define Moshe's humility and the religious goal of humility in general. Let us go to Refresh. Now here, I have to admit, there's a, an oddity of what I did here, which I've never been able to explain to myself. Now, I come from a very strong uh, ethic that you should learn sources in the original. Right? That real learning is not when you learn things in translation. Right? You go back to the original Hebrew or the original Aramaic. Right? This is a very strong ethic of where I come from. So I tend to have my sources all in Hebrew and all in Aramaic. Of course, when it comes to Rav Hirsch's commentary, it's a bit bizarre that I'm adamant about Hebrew because really I should be doing it in German right now. Right? Rav Hirsch wrote his commentary in German. It's not obvious to me at that point why the Hebrew translation is superior to the English translation, but despite the fact that I cannot explain this tendency, I am adamant about doing it in Hebrew. So I actually like Ruff, the, the Hebrew translation of first, I find it easier to read. I don't know what you guys have experienced, but Rob Brewer did a very nice job. I actually find that easier to read than the, uh, than the English translation. Okay, so let's see what you have here. So we're not doing this because we need to read in the original, we're just doing it because we're doing it. And unfortunately, our first also is not in any computer program, so I noticed right away a typo when I typed it in. Should be Efshar, not Eshbar. Efshar Shamilim Ba'ish Moshe. Romzot, these words hint, 
Lesiba to the cause, Sheheviu Otam Ladunet Moshakach. Here's a third interpretation. What's this phrase doing here? It's explaining what happened. How did it happen that Aaron and Miriam spoke negatively about Moshe? An shel Moshe, the extra humility of Moshe, garma caused shelo yadu davar al yachasoam yuchad vayechid b'min Hashem. That Aaron and Miriam didn't truly understand that Moshe was unique. This is, I think, a very interesting shot. By raises some questions about humility. Let's say someone's very humble. They never say they do anything special. So on one hand, that's beautiful. On the other hand, maybe like people don't actually know. Like imagine like a big Talmud Chacham moves into Ol Nacham. Right? Person sits all the way in the back, never says anything, never pipes up in a shear. Right? So then, at some point, like an issue comes up, and they ask the guy in the back, so what does he know? Well, because he's never said anything to indicate that he's a huge Talmud Chacham, so why would we know? So clearly, you couldn't be totally oblivious to Moshe's role here. But maybe Moshe, he always downplays his ability. See, he was so humble, he actually convinced Miran Aaron that there's really nothing so unique about it. That's how we're first to happen. Okay, so we've got three approaches here why this Pasuk really belongs. It's not out of place in the story. Okay, that's part one. Let's go to part two. What about Moshe's humility and being humble in general? So here, let me throw a question to you. I think if you look at the Torah, besides this Pasuk, where Moshe explicitly is called humble, there are other verses that suggest, really, that Moshe is quite humble. By the way, this doesn't mean Moshe is perfect, of course. Moshe does occasionally err in the Torah. Though you notice it's often because of anger. That seems to be the one issue Moshe struggles with a bit sometimes is anger, though if you're trying to lead Am Yisrael in the Midbar, that could definitely get you angry. But humility doesn't seem to be his issue. Where do we have a verse where Moshe really shows that? He's not about competition. He's not about, I have to be the best. So I think there's a very strong pasuk also in this week's Parsha, which is earlier. I, I often wonder, like, is Bamidbar Yudet really have this in mind from Bamidbar Yudaf? One of the greatest stories, it doesn't get talked about so much, but one of the greatest stories in Torah. What happens? There are other people prophesizing in the camp. And Yoshua seems to think that the fact that Eldad and Medad are giving, uh, for lack of a better term, unauthorized prophecy, this is somehow problematic. She actually comes to Moses. Moses, you got to do something about it. I don't put him in jail, stop him, right? Do something about these these young upstarts, right? Eldad and Medad. And Moses possibly it's just one of the most beautiful psukim that we have. Look at the next source. What does Moses say? Moshe. Moshe says to to Yoshua, Hamekane you're jealous on my behalf. Umiten kol am Hashem I wish that all of God's people would be prophets. Right? You think that prophecy is something like an exclusive club? Like it only works if you could leave some people out? Like the bouncer won't let people in? That's the only thing that makes it worth it? Right? That's not the way I think about life. I think it's a very powerful puzzle. Like many of us, we might be fine people, but like we like the fact that we have certain things other people can't access. Right? There's almost like a little bit of a nervousness. Maybe too many other people, maybe I give this good to our Torah, now everyone will know it. Right? There's a problem that we think in those terms. But apparently Moshe did not think in those terms. Moshe said, I don't have a problem. Yeshua, you have a problem with them prophesizing? I have no problem with it. So I think that fits in nicely with the concept of Moshe's humility. Yeah. Perhaps it's a problem for Yeshua's ego. Because like many Talmudim we see here, my Rebbe... Okay, Yafet. Yeah, that's sharp. That's very sharp. Right. That's a very sharp point. In fact, you actually see that historically. It's very interesting. Often in the world of Yeshiva, where if there was a debate between various Rabbanim, like who would be the Rosh Yeshiva, often the Talmudim were much more vociferous about it and aggressive about it than the Rashiva. There are several examples of that in the last 200 years of Jewish history. So I think it's a sharp psychological point. Would you say that such competition, like who should be chief rabbi, 
is de facto proof that neither is fit. Look, it's a little bit tricky because within limits, like a certain pride in your Rebbe and belief that he has got the talent, I think is legitimate. But the Rebbe right. himself will compete to be chief rabbi. Look, putting it, again, I would also be a little careful, putting your name in for a position that also doesn't mean you're necessarily arrogant or self-serving. Meaning people apply to be rabbi of shoals also, right? I would be careful. I mean, I admit there's certainly a danger in rabbinic competitions, and often one's not sure that L'shem Shemayim is really the operative principle. So I wouldn't go so far as to say that like any kind of entry into a competition of some kind or another is problematic. That seems a little bit too strong for me. Okay? You could be free, free to disagree. It's okay with me. Okay. So let's now... Ah, okay. So now we have both why Moshe's humility is mentioned in your bet, and I think we have a sterling example of Moshe's humility in Bamidbar Yadav. Let us, I think, go to... We'll start going to some very insightful pieces here. Let us now see, I think, a very, very beautiful piece by the Mesha Chachma. Before we get there, though, we have to read one Pasuk. Because he's playing off the Pasuk, although I'm convinced here... Rav Meir Simcha just had a great idea, and he was like looking for a pasuk to fit in it. So he happened to find our pasuk, but I think the idea was really what motivated him here. Let's look at Bamidbar Tetzai. This is in the middle of the Korach episode, and the people are complaining about Moshe, and Moshe does not know why they're complaining about him. Here also he gets angry, by the way. So now I'm on the right-hand side. Moshe is quite angry. He says to God, Don't turn to their mincha. Don't accept the mincha of these people. Lo chamor echad meem nasati. I never took one of their donkeys. Lo rotate echad meem. I never did anything bad. I didn't take advantage of my position. Not the kind of leader who somehow taxes you and all of a sudden all your good stuff is going to him. That's not who I am. Okay, that's a pasuk. Not, not necessarily about humility. But let us look at a beautiful commentary here. I'll tell you a brief story about the Meshachachma. Those of you who know it can excuse uh, just you, a brief review. Meshachachma, of course, is written by Rabbi Simcha Cohen from Dvinsk. He uh, passed away in the 1920s. Actually, my grandfather knew him as a young, fellow, young boy. So uh, one interesting story about him, he actually wrote two famous works. He wrote the Mesha Chachma, commentary on Humash, and the Or Sameach, which is his commentary on the Rambam. Right, they both have his name in it, right? Meir Simcha, so Or Sameach. And in Mesha Chachma, in Meshech, you have Meir Simcha Kohen. So he lived in Dvinsk along with the Ragachava, quite an illustrious group of Rabbanim lived in Dvinsk. So Meir Simcha wrote the Meshachachma first. And he was going to publish it, his Perish and Chumash. His father told him, nah, you put out a Perish and Chumash, they won't take you seriously as a Lamdan. Right? Real Tamir Chumash put out Svarim on Gemara, on Halacha. So put the Meshachachma away for now and write something else. So he published first, he wrote the Arsameach on the Rambam, and he published that first. And the Meshachachma, I'm trying to remember, it either came out at the end of his life or even after he passed away, if I remember correctly. I think after he passed away, actually. So I find it quite ironic because, again, the Yosemite is a wonderful saver. Actually, the Meshachachma is a more important saver for Ram Yisrael. It's quite a beautiful saver. I'd like to believe that uh, his status would not have been harmed even if the Meshachachma had come out first, but uh, that's the story. So let's see what Rameir Simcha has to say here. Yitachin, it's possible. I think he has a tremendous psychological insight here. Ki amishtabchim ba'anava, those that praise their own humility, right? those that, so to speak, make a show of humility, they're really not, right? Some people like to make a show. I'm willing to relinquish honors. Look what he says here, so sharp psychologically. To who are they willing to subject themselves? To somebody who is much lower. It's a very sharp point. What does he say? 
if I, let's say I don't know, we're discussing like a certain shot, and you have me, I've been, I don't say I've spent 20 years of my life in yeshiva, and you have somebody else who spent like, uh, I don't know, three months, he's about shuva. So if I were having a discussion about some Gemara, I say, well, if you remember, you know better than me. Right, so in some ways it could be a funny humility, a fake humility, because I know everybody in the room knows that I've learned much more than he does. So I could make this show of, like, I'm not really at risk. Right, it's a safe gesture. Right, so with someone who everyone knows is much lesser than you in a given field, so it's easy to be humble. Right, right, no cost whatsoever. You just win, you, humility points in society. Says Rabbi Meir Simcha, that's easy. Right, Shemishu Shafel Mimenu Bamalato, Umechab Kimu Menashkimota. Of What if someone is Berkam, someone who's a genuine rival, someone who actually is on their level? Oh, Erech Yoter Gavoa, or even worse, someone who actually is a bit higher than me. Asher Yitachin with Oh. Now I have to be nervous. If I give in in public, people might actually get the idea. Ki Hachna Eno Mitzad Hanava. I'm not giving in because I'm humble. Rak Mitzad Atzedek. Wait, no, this is too dangerous, right? If I give in to this guy who's my rival, I say, you know better, people might actually think he knows better. Right, that's too dangerous. Then I got to fight to the death. Right, so our mayor Simcha is this very sharp, I think it's true, psychological insight. The genuinely humble person can be humble even vis-a-vis real rivals. The fake, the phony humble person finds it easy to be humble when it's not a real rivalry, when everyone knows the truth, but will struggle when there's a genuine rival. Again, I think this happens. Thank you. Even in the rabbinic world, unfortunately, you can have rabbis who will easily give in to the local farmer, but there's a fight with another rabbi, and then, then you can never admit that you're wrong. Right? Then you have to go on forever. So Rameir Simchas says that is a known problem, a known danger in the world of humility. So then he says, I'm not going to do the rest inside. It's, it's a cute reading. He says, when we use the word echad, echad could have two meanings. Chazal pick up on this sometimes. Echad could just mean an individual. But sometimes Chazal say the word echad is used to mean like the miuchad, like a special one, like a, like when the king of Gwar says kimat shachav echad ha'am, he does not mean oh just any old fellow of the people, one a man of the people. He means the man of the people, I me. Right. So echad could also be miuchad. So Mayor Simcha would like to take echad in this pasuk as being a significant person. So what does Moshe say? Lo chamor echad mehem nasati. It's not only that I didn't start up with people who are obviously lower than me. Even the miyuchadim, even those that are, have stature, I was not lording over them either. Right? I'm not a phony, humble person. It's not only that a show. Right? I never tried to put down rivals just because they were rivals. Yeah? So as far as I know, they did not fight. As far as I know, they did not fight. Yeah. Look, I think they also had like, different turfs to some degree. But that, that doesn't prevent fighting, though. So uh, I, I'm pretty sure. Like, I, I have not read every piece of biographical information about both of them, but from what I've seen, I'm not aware of any stories about them fighting. It's actually quite interesting because they were also very different kind of personalities. Like, Mayor Simcha was a very easygoing fellow, and the Ragachev was known as being quick to insult you. So I guess you could like, get both experiences. Like, my grandfather used to go to Vince and visit both of them. So you could get like, insulted by the Ragachev and then go to Mayor Simcha and feel better afterward. Okay, so they, but as far as I know, they did not, uh, I'm not aware of any fighting between the two of them. Okay, great. So now we have Moshe's humility, we have examples of Moshe's humility, and an insight of Rameer Simcha about what authentic humility is. Okay, now let's broaden the question. Let's go beyond the issue of Moshe Rabbeinu. Let's ask, what does it really mean to be a humble person? What is the religious ideal, what is the ethical ideal 
of humility. And there's certainly something that's been debated, debated throughout the ages. So let us contrast, I mean, we really have several approaches, but contrast two basic approaches. We'll start with the Rambam. Many of you know that the Rambam was very impressed by Aristotle's doctrine of the golden mean, right? that one shouldn't be an extremist. Right? One shouldn't be too quick to spend all one's money, on the other hand, one shouldn't be so stingy that you can't get a dollar out of your wallet. Somewhere in the middle, right? The Rambam says almost all character traits, right? the key is the golden mean. Okay? Very interestingly, the Rambam deviates from Aristotle on a couple of things. Right? In general, this is interesting because the Rambam's relationship with Greek philosophy. He was very impressed with it, but didn't accept everything. Right? There were certain things that he disagreed with. So famously, the Rambam says there are two traits where it's not good to be middle of the road. Okay? Two traits, of course, are Shomyakov. Yes, anger and humility. But, you know, don't be middle of the road with anger. Be an extremist against anger. And be an extremist against arrogance. But what does that mean to be an extremist against arrogance? So let's see what the Rambam says here in the Mishnah Torah. This is something if you really want to study, by the way, it's tricky because the Rambam talks about the golden mean in more than one place. But he talks about the golden mean in Shmonat Prakim, in his introduction to his commentary on Perkei Avot. He talks about the golden mean in Hilchot Eot. Even in Hilchot Eot, there are differences between his presentation in the first parak of Hilchot Eot and the second parak. So this is a well-known conundrum. I want you to realize I'm going to oversimplify a bit. Anybody who writes the definitive work, puts all the Rambam texts together on the golden mean, will be famous forever. This is your opportunity. Okay, so let's see what the Rambam says here. Yeah, okay. Well, that's easier to figure out. There's some character traits. By the way, it's interesting. We use the word deot normally to mean opinions. Right, the Rambam doesn't mean opinions. Hilchot deot is about character traits. Right, the Rambam discusses philosophical opinions in Hilchot Yesod HaTorah. Deot for the Rambam here is character traits. There are character traits which you should not be a middle-of-the-road person. Be an extremist. Go to one extreme. Like arrogance. Run away from arrogance like the plague. Now look what he says. Very powerful language. The Torah isn't the one you only to be humble. But rather, lowly of spirit. By the way, I didn't notice this until right now. Um, later on, I was going to differentiate between these two terms, but the Rambam himself does so. Apparently, there's anav, that's hum, regular humility, but then there's shvaruach. Apparently, shvaruach is a more extreme position than anav. We're going to see a few commentators are going to agree with this terminology. Don't be an anav, that would be middle of the road. Be an extremist. Be a shvaruach. What does it mean to be a shvaruach? He says, it's a ruach nemucha ma'od, very lowly of spirit. Ah, very interesting. So you might have said, but Moshe's goal is not to be Shvaruach. The wording of the Pesukim is Anav. Says Ram, yeah, but look what it says. It says Anav Ma'od. So that Anav Ma'od means no, it's not just regular Anava. Now this seems to mean, again, Ram doesn't fully explain here, but somehow you think even more, le- even lesser of yourself. You're not just an Anav, you're Shvaruach. Okay, so this is picked up on by the Mesil and by the Ramchal. Now, the Ramchal doesn't make this terminology split, but I think it still typifies the position, irrespective of the terminology question. Let's go to Maral and his classic ethical work, Mesil Yisharim. Ki says the Ramchal, any level, any achievement you have, you did something nice, like you, you ran a chesed organization, and you learned the Masechet, that's very good. Eino el chesed kel alav. Nah, that wasn't you. That was God. God enabled you to do it. God wanted to bestow favor upon you. But if you really look at who you are, 
You look at your nature, what are you really? You are a lowly and a degraded creature. Now, he doesn't differentiate between the terms, but Mesilla Sharm seems to think that, you know, you should really look at yourself and say, you know, I'm pretty lousy, right? These achievements I had, it wasn't really even me, it was just God helping me, right? In some ways, you have an extreme position here, right? Which, again, the Rambam didn't spell out his position, but he did say, don't be just an enough, be a ashfal ruach. So one religious and ethical position out there is really, you shouldn't think so, so highly of yourself. Actually, think poorly of yourself. Maybe that is one kind of religious ideal. That does seem to be what we have here, at first glance at least, in the Rambam and the Ramcha. Ah, okay, very good, very good. Okay, so now we're going to outline another position, and we're going to try to discuss in a little bit more depth perhaps some advantages and disadvantages of the two positions. Right? It's hard to deny that both positions exist in our tradition, and when that happens, one of the things we have to figure out is what do we see as the advantages, what are the dangers of each position, what might be a smarter pedagogic maneuver. So let's go to the Nitziv. Okay, before we get to the setup of the Nitziv, I'd like to turn the page for a second. We'll come back to this Nitziv. We need to see two Gemaras, and then we'll be able to understand this Nitziv. Okay, some of you have probably heard this from me before, but, or just heard it before, but it's worth doing it again anyway. You know, I always point out that Gemara tells a few jokes. Not many, but there are at least four or five jokes in the Gemara. Okay, if you go through Dafyomi, it's not a great ratio, waiting for those four and five jokes, but here's one of them. Okay, there's a mission at the end of Sota which says when various Tanaim died, certain traits left the world. You know, we might say, someone today might say, I don't know, uh, we'll use a, I don't know, for Yushal Yakum, I'll use a football analogy, make you happy. Someone said, like, uh, when David Beckham retired, there are no more good free kickers in soccer. Right, that that trait has, you can't say free kickers, I guess, practitioners of free kicks in soccer. Right, there aren't people anymore who can, who can do that. Might be something you might say, you might say you know, when, once Einstein died, there were no more great scientists. So the Gemara says this about, the Mishnah says about certain Tanai. So it says when Rabbi Yehuda Anasi died, there were no more humble people and no more fears of sin. So let's see the Gemara. Misha made Rabbi when Rabbi died, Batla Anavav That was it. He stood for humility and fearing of sin. He's dead. Those traits have left the world. These are the last two lines of Sota, by the way. I was wondering if like, the Gemara like, put, put a joke at the end. You made it to the end of the Masechet, like your reward is you get a joke. Amalei Rabbi Yosef Latana. So Rabbi Yosef says to the person reciting the Tanitic material, Lo titniyanava. What do you mean there's no more humble people in the world? Don't say that. Dikana. After all, there's me. But yours truly. Like, what do you mean there's no more humble people in the world? You can't say that. I'm here. Now clearly Rabbi Yosef on one level was trying to be funny. Like what do you mean there's no more humble people? There's me. But maybe he was trying to make a deeper point also. Why did Rabbi Yosef get up and say, what do you mean there's no more humble people? There's yours truly. So let's take a break on that for one second. Leave that as a question. Why Rabbi Yosef says that. And go to the next source. Also a fascinating source. There are too many good tangents I'd like to go on here, but I'm going to resist the temptation for once. Okay, there's a famous question, because there are different types of scholars in the world. Right? This is true both in Torah and in other fields. There's one scholar who just has read every book out there. Learn every line in the Sefer. They just have seen all the material. That is one kind of very impressive scholar. There's another kind of scholar where you don't feel like they've read everything, but you're amazed at the depth of their analysis. Such a penetrating analysis. Again, I think this is true in Torah, it's true in the university world. We probably, many of us had college professors who represented both kinds of, of genius. But in the yeshiva world, it's also a school like this. And it's often a question well, you have a Rosh Hashiva position out there, so who should you give it to? The one who knows every source? Or the one who's very good at analyzing, right? Which one is more crucial for the position? Obviously, in the ideal yeshiva, you have both traits, represented perhaps by different scholars. I'm sorry? You should only give it to the one who will do it free and earn 
Ah, uh, there you go. Okay, so let's see the challenge here. So the Gemara says, Rav Yosef Sinai. Sinai means he knew it all. It was like he was standing there at Sinai and just, they were funneling all the Torah information into him. He just got it all. Rav Yosef, he read every Sefer. Rabba Oker Harim. Rabba was an uprooter of mountains. Uprooter of mountains is a metaphor for being very good argumentation. Now, since my, you didn't like the joke of the Gemara I'll tell you another joke. Okay, I'll tell you a good yeshivish joke. Okay, the Gemara is about to ask, who should they pick? Who's better, right? The one who knows it all or the one who's good at reasoning? So the Gemara, what's the Gemara's terminology? Who wins? Sinai, who knows it all, or Oker Harim, the one who's good at reasoning? So I once gave a shear and someone came up to me after this year, a fellow in my community named Tomer Moskowitz, and he said, I don't understand. If it's Sinai against Oker Harim, what kind of competition is that? Obviously, who wins? I mean, you have a mountain against the uprooter of mountains. So why do they ask who wins the Sinai Oker Harim? Obviously, the Oker Harim... So he says, ah, but the Oka Harim can't find the Sinai. Okay. If you didn't get it, forget about it. Okay. So Rabbi Yosef Sinai Rabbi Oka Harim. Sholchu Taman. So they sent a question. Eizemen Kodem. Who should be the Rosh Hashiva? Here we are in Pumpadita. We need to appoint either Rabbi or Rabbi Yosef. Who should we appoint? Sholchu So they sent back Sinai Adif. Pick the one who knows it all. Pick Rabbi Yosef. Dama Marcus, the master said, Hakal Tzrichin Lamari Chataya. Everyone needs the master of the wheat. You need the person with the material. I really don't want to get into it, but there's a very interesting piece in Rav Shlomo Kluger. Rav Shlomo Kluger argues this was only true at the time of the Gemara. Because before Tarshavah has written down, then what you need more than anything is the information. If you don't have the information, you can't get started. Rav Shlomo Kluger argues, but once it's the 1700s and it's all written down, now the most important thing is someone's good analysis. I don't know if he's right, but if Rav Shlomo Kluger is right, it's all the more so true in our day. Right? Our problem is not accessing the information. Our problem is figuring out what to do with it. Right? So, again, it's very interesting whether Shlomo Kluger is correct or not, but to the degree that he's correct, it's all the more true today. Be that as it may, the Gemara preferred the Sinai. I.e., they preferred... They preferred... Rav Yosef. Okay. But very, something very interesting happened. Rav Yosef did not accept it. He said, no, no, give it to Rabbah. I don't need it. Ula, uh, place. Malach Raba Esrin There's a fascinating postscript. Raba was the king. He was Rashiva for 22 years. So when Rav Yosef turned down this position, it wasn't like he got it three years later. Right? For 22 years, Raba is the Rosh Hashiva. The Hadar Malach Rav Yosef. And only after that, so it was a pretty significant gesture. Right? He got the job 22 years later. The Kol Shani de Malach Raba, all the years that Raba was the king, as it were, Rav Yosef Afilu Umna Lebete Lo Chalif. The Uman, the craftsman, which I'll go with Rashi here. Rashi says it's the blood letter. The blood letter did not come to his house. The blood letter did not make house calls. Now you have to think about the following. You have to remember that for most of human history, bloodletting was considered a respectable medical profession. Right? I often point out when I teach this, it's people think like, oh, in the Gemara they thought bloodletting was good. Like, go back to like 1750, there's still bloodletting. Right? It's only quite recently in human history that they decided that bloodletting was not uh, the way to go. Right? I think George Washington was bloodletted, if I remember correctly. I think some people think it's why he died. If I, if I recall. But is that correct? Yes, three scientific times. Right. Rav said once that when the Gemara speaks about Rav Shev, uh, right, correct. correct. It means the witch doctors which existed. Correct, correct, correct. It's, it's, I think there's a lot of truth to that. If we look at the way doctors are related to in earlier sources, I think our doctors have a better batting average. Like, not that they're flawless, but uh, they do have a better batting average. I think that's correct. It all makes you wonder, like, in like the 400s, like, why anybody would go to a doctor. Like, would, was your rate better than if you did it? I wondered about that for a while, actually. 
But okay, but in any case, so the, the, what we have here is basically a parallel to the doctor making house calls. Like what happens if you're a chasha person in society, so the blood letter comes to your house, right? The doctor makes a house call. If you're just a run-of-the-mill fellow, so you have to go to the blood letter shop, to his office. Right? He doesn't make a house call. What did Rabbi Yosef do? So Rabbi Yosef turns down the position for 22 years and the whole time refuses to take honorific rewards, right? I'm not going to have the blood letter make a house call. I'll get in line just like anybody else at the blood letter's office. Okay. With that, we can now go back to the Nitziv. Let's go back to the first page and we'll set up the other, the other view of humility and we'll try to analyze which one is better. Okay. Says the Nitziv, bottom source, Hamikdabar, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yudar Berlin, right? The Rosh Hashiva of the Lajan. Umashmaut Anav, what's the real meaning of humility? Hu she'enu chosheish lechvodo v'tzaro. You're not so concerned about your honor. You don't demand to get shlishi in shul. If you didn't get mafter yona, life goes on. If you're not honored at the shul dinner, that's also okay. V'lo mishum shushafel ba'atzmo. But not because you have a low opinion of yourself. V'eno makir ba'atzmo. It's not that you don't know. She'eno re'oi l'zatzar. You didn't deserve this, this degrading behavior. V'hedder ha'kavod. El ha'mashmut anav. What does it really mean to be humble? Shum mitnahed you function. You're not concerned about getting recognition. Says the Nitziv, humility is not about low self-esteem. It's not that you have a poor opinion of yourself. It's not, what was the terminology of the Mesil Sajarim? It's not your shafal v'nivzeh admaot. You are not shafal v'nivzeh admaot. You might have a healthy sense of your own abilities, right? But you're not constantly demanding recognition. Again, you don't need to you don't need to be honored at the dinner. If people don't realize that you're the biggest expert in the room, you could live with that too. Right? It's about your social interaction. Now, presumably, Nitzit would think, it's not only social. Look, if I think I'm the greatest human being in human history, presumably you think that's a problem. But if you have a basic, healthy sense of self, and you're aware of your good qualities, but you're not always demanding recognition, that's what it really means to be an enough. Now, if you get back to the terminology split, I didn't quote this part, but Nitziv says, I disagree with Mesil Sisharm. Because the Mesil Sisharm says, Anav equals Shval Ruach. And I say, Anav does not equal Shval Ruach. In some ways, the Nitziv is like the Rambam. Not that he agrees with the Rambam, but about the terminology. Right? The Rambam said, Don't be an Anav. That would be like a middle of the road. That would be a golden mean. Be a Shval Ruach. Be Anav Ma'ot. The Nitziv says, Nothing doing. Be an Anav. Don't be a Shval Ruach. Right? And it's, being enough is mostly in like this, how I interact with other people. I don't always demand that I get everything. I don't demand all, every honor. That's what it means to be an enough. Now this, you might think that's easy. This is not easy at all, by the way. There was one year at the YU dinner. I was not there, but it was a well-known story. Right? A very wealthy fellow got up and said, I love kavod. I wish there was a bracha to make upon receiving kavod. I would make it right now. Right? That's what the person said. So this is certainly a, a real challenge out there in the world of... Uh, in the world of uh, humanity. And it says that's the real challenge of being enough. Not to demand recognition all the time. Then the Nitzv says eventually, he says, I could prove it from Rav Yosef. What does Rav Yosef say at the end of Sota? Rav Yosef says, what do you mean there's no more humble people? There's me. Now how could Rav Yosef say that? So if you think enough means you're Shval Ruach, so that makes no sense. How could a Shval Ruach get up and say, there's me? Now I admit, even according to the Nitzv, it's a bit difficult that Rav Yosef said that. But there's one thing that's great though. This is the same Rav Yosef who, in Horeo, what did he do? For 22 years, he turned down the Rosh Hashiva job and refused to take 
titles. So maybe such a person could on some level say, like, it's not true people don't do give up covet anymore. I legitimately was willing to give up covet. From the Nitzv's perspective, it makes more sense what Rabbi Yosef said. Imagine that the Sota story happened after the Haryot story. So if Yosef is listening and someone says, there's no more Anava. And Anava means, according to Nitziv, no one's willing to give up honors anymore. So if Yosef could legitimately get up and say, no one's willing to give up honors anymore, but where have I been for the last 22 years? Like, I haven't given up honors. It's not true. It, that makes sense. Not if you think Anav means to be Shval Ruach, to have a low opinion of yourself. Okay, we're good? So we've got the Rambam and the Ramchal on one side. We've got the Nitziv on the other side. Let's now talk about some of the pluses and minuses of the two sides. Okay, let's go back to the second page. See if we can sneak it in. I'm going to have to skip one source here. This guy, well, I always put too much on, but uh, there's just some great stuff I'd like to get to. Okay. Let us see some of the pluses and minuses of both sides. Okay, let's start with Rav Cook. Okay, Rav Cook has a wonderful work called Midot Haraya, where he goes through different character traits, his little thoughts on character traits. And Rav Cook, many, some of you may know, Rav Cook spent a little bit more than a year in Volozhin, which means Rav Cook was actually a student of the Nitziv. Okay, in fact, Rav Cook has an essay on the Nitziv. So, I don't know to what degree Rav Cook was influenced by the Nitziv, but here he certainly agrees. Let's see what Rav Cook says about humility. So I'm skipping the Tiferet Yisrael. It's quite interesting, Tiferet Yisrael. Those of you who want can read it on your own. Let's go to the... I'll just actually, I'll mention it very briefly. Tiferet Yisrael basically says that both models exist in the in Tanakh. It's quite interesting, actually. He says the model of Anav is Moshe. Moshe was aware of his traits, but he was an Anav. And the model of Shvaruach is Davramach which is quite interesting. It's good food for thought when you're reading through Tehillim. Like, David has a greater sense of, uh, what am I, I'm really worthless. But that's something that Moshe doesn't express. Now, clearly, to some degree, David expresses that after the Chet of Batsheva. But at the same time, it's an interesting suggestion that maybe both models are there in the great personalities of Tanakh. But be that as it may, let us go to Rav Kook and Anava. As long as Anava brings depression, brings sadness, Right away, it's invalid. Now, I would broaden the point a little bit, and Rav Cook agrees with this. I just didn't quote the whole thing. Very often, let me say the following. I've been in education now. How long have I been in education for? Took 16 years. Right? So if someone asked me the following question, like, you've had arrogant students, and you've had underconfident students. How do you compare the two? So I might say as follows. There's two separate questions. One is, which student is more irritating to teach? And the other question is, which one is more self-destructive? Now, I think I probably would admit it's probably more irritating to have an arrogant student than a student with low self-esteem. But that's a separate question from which one is harming themselves more. And I think we've all seen in the world that someone who really is convinced that they don't have it, right, that they're, they've got no hope, that they really don't have good qualities, that is invariably a self-fulfilling prophecy. A, for of Cook's reason, it's a downer, right, you get depressed, but it's not just a question of depression. It's also a question, again, of the self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, how can you really achieve anything in life? Right? How can you ask a good kasha and gemarsha if you're convinced all your questions are stupid? Right? You don't have a chance. So the first point I would make, again, in terms of agonist choice, there's a certain danger in taking the shval ruach, the shval v'niv z'ad ma'od. Shval v'niv z'ad ma'od could be this depressing state. It could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. There's definitely a certain danger there, which is why I'd be wary. It's one of the reasons my inclination is to go with the Nitziv's interpretation of Anava and not with the Ramchal's interpretation. That's the first thing I'd say. Okay, I'd like to make a second point here. Uh, let's start with the Gemara and Brachot. I'm going to go a little bit out of order. There's a Gemara and Brachot, I'm going to run out of time here. There's a Gemara and Brachot that says as follows. I have to do most of it outside. There's a Gemara and Brachot where Moshe Rabbeinu says to the Jewish people, he says in the Torah, but the Gemara discusses this. What does God ask you? Atay Yisrael Mashem, Ki'im, 
lira. What does God ask from you? Just one little thing. What does God ask? Just that you fear him. So the Gemara Brachot asks the obvious question. That's, that's it? I mean, that, that's a little thing? All God asks is that you fear him? Fear of God is one of the grand religious goals of life. Reverence for divinity, right? Why is the Gemara treating it like it's this minor achievement? So what's the Gemara's answer? Many may know. For Moshe, it was a minor thing. Okay, that's the Gemara Brachot, right? For Moshe, it was milta zutrata. Now, there's an obvious question to be asked there, which is what? Again, Moshe says to the Jewish people, all God asks from you is that you fear him, that you have reverence for him. Then the Gemara's question is, but what do you mean all? That, that's a big deal. The Gemara's answer, for Moshe, it wasn't a big deal. It was an easy thing. What, what, what's the problem? Why does that not answer the question? It doesn't answer the question at all. Because, everyone should ask me a very basic question here. Moshe's talking... Tom Yisrael, a leader should be talking from the Kal's vantage point, not from his own. Like, let's say someone walks into this shoal right now who's never heard a word of Hebrew before. And I say, they're straight from, I don't know, wherever they're from, they're straight from Norway. Right? A Norwegian tourist walks in the back, curious what's happening. I say, why can't you read this puzzle? It's my Yisrael, right? It's so easy. But why does it help that it's easy for me? That doesn't help this person. How could Moshe Rabbeinu say, fear of heaven is a minor thing, it's easy for me? How does that help Am Yisrael? So I'm, I'm going to do it outside, but the Eitz Yosef says, Eitz Yosef is one of the Pirushim you find in Yaakov, he said it has to do with Moshe's humility. Moshe didn't, knew that he'd achieved fear of heaven, but he didn't realize that was because he was, he was so much greater than everybody else. He thought, well, if I could achieve reverence for God, I have that kind of reverence, so presumably <laughs> anybody could. So on the one hand, I, I think this story, this shot is a double-edged sword, by the way. Because on the one hand, you could say, what a great character Moshe Rabbeinu is. Right here, he doesn't realize that the average person struggles to achieve Yerat Hashem. He thinks anybody can do it. On the other hand, on some level, I mean, if that's right, I mean, it's not the only shot in the Kamar, by the way. If that's right, that means it's a fault of leadership. Meaning, an incorrect sense of self gets in the way of real life. Like, pragmatically, it's a problem. Right, if you think you can't do it and you can, or if you're confused about your relationship with other people based on some unbalanced sense of loneliness, so you can't function. Right? I, this is a separate point I made before. My first point was that it's self-defeating. It hurts yourself. This is not about being self-defeating, but it's about I can't do the things I need to do. I'm not, I can't view the situation correctly. It's going to get in the way of the accurate representation of what I have to deal with in life. Again, it doesn't mean I should think I'm the greatest person ever. Of course, that, that might probably is not accurate either, actually. Not accurate. But I can't, if I think I'm the worst person, that will also get in the way of leadership. Right? You couldn't possibly be a leader. You can't accurately figure out what's going on. So it seems to me we've got a couple of arguments why I think the more extreme position is difficult. Again, one argument I thought it's self-defeating, it's depressing, and also you can't analyze the situation correctly. Okay. Let's get sneak in two more points here. Two more points about humility. Okay, it's good. I rushed a little bit, and I'll get to the two points I wanted to get to. Okay, we're going to try. So those are, I think, our two advantages to the more middle position, the Nitzib and Rav Cook's position, as opposed to the Rambam and Ramchal. Let us try to look at two more insights about humility, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay, where else do we have paradigms of humility in our tradition? So, of course, we have Moshe. But, uh, you know, sorry about that. So I saw there was no clock in here, so this is my clock. Okay. So, where do we have other paragons of humility. So in the Gemara, of course, we have Hillel. Right? Hillel is known as being very humble. In fact, there's Gemara in Shabbat on the bottom, second to the bottom row here. 
where the Gemara begins, Be humble, I kill Don't be very uh, strict like Shammai. And then, I'm not going to do it inside, but the Gemara tells a story most of you are familiar with. That Hill was known as being very difficult to get angry. So two guys have a bet, quite interesting bet. If you can vex Hillel, if you can get him, make him lose his temper, you win 400 Zeus, right? Quite a hefty amount. So this guy's got a great strategy. I'll come on Friday afternoon, the least convenient time. I'll wait till Hill's in the shower, right? I'll knock on his door. I'll be rude. I'll ask him silly questions, right? The three questions are, if I remember correctly, why do the Babylonians have round heads? And why do the Africans have white feet? And why do some other people have slanty eyes? Right, those are three questions. Each time Hillel answers with great patience, and the guy is unable to make Hillel lose his temper. Okay, that's fine. One of the things I'd like to focus on, though, is the Gemara's opening line. The Gemara says, Be humble like Hillel. It's interesting here. It's not obvious to me that humility is the trait in question. Let me make the point. I, I admit you could come to a connection, but let me make the point a little bit sharper. Think about what I said before. I said before, Moshe Rabbeinu in the Torah, he really is the paragon of humility. If Moshe ever errors, it has, seems to have to do with anger. I think if you think about it, those two axes, like the staying calm, getting angry, and the arrogance, humility axis, they don't always go together. When we think about ourselves, we think about people we know, they're those who struggle with one and don't struggle at all. Well, yeah, they, think about it, right? they don't go together necessarily. I think we can all think of people who are very angry people, they're always flying off the handle, but they don't think they're the greatest person ever. Right? Quite the opposite. Maybe they don't think so highly of themselves. Maybe that's why they're so angry. Right? So that's sometimes, and sometimes we see the opposite. Sometimes we see somebody who, who uh, thinks they're, the great, they're insufferable in how great they think they are, but they never lose their temper. I guess they don't have to because they think they're the greatest. Right? So those two things don't always go together. So in theory, the Gemara could have said, Hillel's trait here is not humility. It's, I don't know, equanimity. Hillel knows how to, everyone me at this point? It's not obvious to me the Gemara is highlighting the relevant trait of Hillel. Now, I realize one could say, but there is a relationship. The humble person doesn't take himself so seriously, won't be so quick to say, who do you think you are? You're wasting my time on Hillel. You could make a connection. However, I think there's a very, very profound idea of Rav Cook. Let us go to the bottom left. Rav Cook wrote a commentary on the Agadic, on the non-legal sections of Brachot and Shabbat. It's really a wonderful commentary. He says, you know what? Humility plays a role that's a little bit different than what most people think. We've been talking about humility so far kind of in two ways. We talk about like your self-perspective. We talk about your social interaction. Says Ralph Cook, there's another angle on humility that is worth thinking about. Here we go. I'm on the bottom left source. The trait of humility. Just like it values every person, but you're not so quick to dismiss an individual. Sorry, you honor him. So too, it values every idea. Rav Kook saying something very profound here. Humility is also true vis-a-vis the world of ideas. There is humility in terms of ideas. What does that mean? It checks every angle. Maybe this field of inquiry has some kind of practical benefit or ethical benefit. If you think about this, I think it's such a beautiful, such a profound idea. Rav Kook say, imagine the arrogant scholar. What is the arrogant scholar very quick to do? Somebody brings up some other field. What do you say? Like with a sweep of the hand, you say, ah, that field? It's a total waste of time. Like serious scholars do not 
engage that. What should we make fun of? I don't know. Make fun of sociology. I hope there's no sociologist in the audience. Right. What do you say? You say, like, oh, I'm a serious scientist. Like, I study biology. Or, I'm a serious thinker. I'm a philosopher. Right. The guy who's a professor of sociology walks in and you say, eh, sociology, fit. It's all common sense. There's no great thought there. Right. You can be very quick to dismiss an entire field of, entire field of inquiry. Right. Says Rav Cook, that's also an arrogance. It's an arrogance that you're so quick to decide this whole field of inquiry has nothing to contribute to humanity. Now, Rav Cook is saying something powerful here. What happens in this story? So it's really great. What does the guy try to do to get Hill angry? He tries to say, I'll ask silly questions. But according to Rav Cook, something ironic happened. The guy wanted to ask silly questions. Rav Cook would say, yeah, who could waste time with such silly questions? But, uh, but Hill, sorry, the Hill would say, what was Hill's first reaction? Hill says, wait, before I dismiss it, Maybe it's not a ridiculous question. Now, you end up with a tremendous irony. By the way, the Svas Emma says this too. Well, he doesn't make this point about humility. But the Svas Emma says, the guy tries to ask a ridiculous question, and lo and behold, he's thwarted because Hill says, oh, you know, maybe there's something to that. Maybe it's worth asking why different people have different genetic characteristics. Is there some evolutionary explanation, some scientific explanation, some divine providence explanation, right? Again, but why, does, why is Hill able to do that? Precisely because he's humble. So I think we have another profound idea here. The humble vis-a-vis the world of ideas. One more point about this intellectual humility. Rav Cook goes on to say, here we go, I'm in three lines from the bottom. There's another aspect. To lower the glance. Can you solve something in a clear and simple way? You don't need far-fetched theories. Rav Cook says again, just beautiful. There's another aspect of the arrogant scholar. What's the other aspect of the arrogant scholar? You can never have a simple explanation. Because you want to give an explanation that only three scholars in the world can understand. Right, someone says to you, why is it this way? You say, well, I can tell it to you, but you'll have to go to graduate school in physics next six years first, and then I'll be able to explain it to you. Right, but what if it's actually simpler, but it's not satisfying to the arrogant scholar? Right, says Rav Cook, that's also manifest here. So, so says Rav Cook, there's an intellectual humility there's a humility in the world of ideas that is manifest in Hillel. Hill A, is not so quick to dismiss the whole field of inquiry. B, Hill says, maybe this is... Rav Cook, by the way, is also playing off Hill's answers here. Hill will say things like, why do the Africans have white feet? Because they live in the swamps and they need to be able to walk across the swampland. So with, without getting to the question whether that's divine providence or, I know, Lamarckian evolution, without getting into that, right, or survival of the widest, right, so without, without getting into that, Right, what you have here is, Rav Cook says, I don't need some fancy explanation, right? Uh, whatever can explain it, can explain it, right? I don't have to come up with something that only three people in the world can understand. That, I'm sorry? In the world, the illiterate, they have this hatred of common Yes. You must give a long list theoretical abstract answer to everything. Look, there's something to that critique, although I can't really address it in the six minutes I have left because I still want to make another point. But, uh, <laughs> but there is something to that. Okay. Let's close with one last point. Let me just review what we've done until now, and I'll sneak in one last thing. What have we seen? We saw why the Torah brings up Moshe's humility in our story. Right? E- either explains why God has to step in, or it explains why Miriam and Aaron were wrong, or according to Hirsch, it explains why they didn't understand Moshe's greatness. Fine. We saw a great example of Moshe's humility. It really doesn't bother him that Eldad and Medad prophesize. He says, let everybody be prophets. Rav Meir Simcha had that great idea. says Rav Meir Simcha. That's real humility because it's easy to be humble about the local woodchopper, but someone who might actually be thought of as your rival, somebody else with authentic prophecy, that's the real test of humility, which I think is something really worth thinking about what Mayor Simcha says. 
Okay, then we sort of set up two models of the religious ideal of humility. The Rambam, Ramchal model, which is more of an extremist, no, I think lowly of yourself, be a shval ruach, and the Rav Kook Nitzid model about being an anav. Says to Nitzid, you don't think lowly of yourself, but you don't demand recognition all the time. That's what it means to be an anav. He had his proof from the Rav Yosef story. I point out a few difficulties or a few dangers of the Ramchal position. Depression, self-fulfilling prophecies. We talk about the Moshe example. Can you really be a leader if you don't understand your qualities? Fine. Then we talked about a different kind of humility, a humility vis-a-vis the world of ideas that's manifest in this story. Okay. Let us now make one last point. I've been talking about not taking the extreme position of humility, having a healthy sense of self. Now again, let's be fair to the Rambam and Ramchal, but there's still a danger, right? Human beings like to think very highly of themselves, right? Maybe if you have a healthy sense of self, you really will become an arrogant person. What is a good way to counter that? So we're going to close with one idea. Let us go back to the Midot Haraya, to the piece I didn't read, the piece about Gava. Of course, he must have thought this was an important topic because he has one category called Anava and a totally separate category called Gava, arrogance. Let's see what Rav Kook has here. Says Rav Kook, Adam mode. A person, every person should be able to look around themselves and say, you know, the things I'm good at, I've got some good qualities, I'm smart in these areas. That's not bad. Gam zero mode. But uh, unfortunately, all of us should be able to look around and say, I have this character flaw, this I'm not so good at. We've all got both. How, how, do, how do I deal with that information? You're down on yourself because of the negative. And you also feel good about your good traits. Okay, that's pretty straightforward so far. You're down about your bad traits, feel good about your good traits. Wonderful. Ah, but now Rav Cook has one last insight. But also the good traits, you could have a healthy sense of that, you could feel good about it, but it shouldn't make you arrogant. How do you do that? Adarabah. They also help you become an anav. Why? They should inspire you. They should inspire you to develop these traits. What Rav Kook is saying is as follows. If you authentically have some good traits, you could do more than one thing with that. You can feel very proud of yourself, but they also are an inherent challenge. Right? Let's say, I look around this room, some of you I know well, you're you're smart people, you're very nice people, right? So if that's true, that should be a challenge, right? If, well, if I'm smart, like, presumably I should be doing, using my intelligence, I don't know, to understand Torah, to help humanity, right? There's a challenge there, right? I'm good with people, but I have a genuine ability to make people feel better, right? So I, that should be who I am. I should be the guy who notices who's depressed and shul and makes them feel better. It's not that you can't be proud of it, but if Cook says, pride gives way before the challenge inherent to those traits, right? You've got those good traits, so what are you doing about it, right? You should feel confronted, by the, 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 the challenge, the confrontation can be more powerful than the arrogance. So I think to close off here, I've been arguing that pedagogically and religiously we shouldn't go with the tell people to feel bad about themselves. That's a mistake. We should go with the nitziv. Have a healthy sense of your own self. But A, you're not demanding recognition. So if you have a healthy sense of self, how do you avoid arrogance? I think Rav Cook has given us some more good advice. Right? Anything you think you have such a good trait about, you should ask yourself not, I'm the best guy in my block, but well, if I really have this trait, what am I doing to contribute to Amisul and to the world? All right, it's been a pleasure.